How do you make a pie crust? Well, I put some flour in a bowl, sprinkle a little salt over it. Do you measure the flour or the salt? No. Absolutely not. No. And I put some shortening in or lard or whatever I have in camp. And I sprinkle a little cold water over it and toss it with a fork. You don't want to handle it too much. You sure don't want to knead it. It's not bread. Uh, and then when it feels right, you just roll her out and <laughs> <laughs> put it on the fly. Uh, that's so unhelpful. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. So just do that, you know, um, daily for 40 years, <laughs> um, which is actually more like 60 or 70 years. And then um, it might be right. Yeah, most of the time it's right. These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. The Six Ranch Podcast is brought to you by Sig Sauer. SIG is a leading provider and manufacturer of firearms, electro-optics, ammunition, air guns, and suppressors. For over 250 years, SIG Sauer Inc. has evolved and thrived by blending American ingenuity, German engineering, and Swiss precision. Today, SIG Sauer is synonymous with industry-leading quality and innovation, which has made it the brand of choice amongst the U.S. military the global defense community, law enforcement, competitive shooters, hunters, and responsible citizens. Sig Sauer is also a premier provider of elite firearms instruction and tactical training at the Sig Sauer Academy located in New Hampshire. For more information about Sig Sauer and its complete line of products, visit SigSauer.com. I don't know. I've been thinking about where to start. It's always interesting where a story starts, right? Because there's things that that happen before the start of a story that make the story possible. But what's the story of of your dad? Uh, The story of my dad is very long, but I can try to make it brief. My dad was born in New Jersey um, at the time when uh, immigrants were... It was a hard time. He was of um, Irish and German descent immigrants, and it was a hard time. They were sort of discriminated against, and and um, to put it just briefly, they were poor. And when you're poor, you don't, your nutrition isn't good, and a lot of them had tuberculosis. And so my grandma that I never knew, Jenny Glennon Bachman, died of tuberculosis and left my dad and his siblings um, orphaned at a young age, and therefore Grandpa Bachman, who in those days was um, drinking, I guess, and, and then he was um, distraught at Grandma's death and being left with children, so he couldn't handle things, so he jumped in the river and drowned and left his clothes on the bank. So I can't imagine how it was like for the children, my dad included, but 
it had to be dealt with, and Daddy had choices. He could go to an aunt that had 13 children. They were Catholic, who lived in the country, or he could go to the city to another aunt that could educate him, and living would be a little easier. But my dad always loved the country and animals, and he chose the country. So the other siblings went off to the city. Um, this was in New Jersey, somewhere around Newark. Anyway, he went to the country and was around animals, but the, the aunt was understandably overworked with her own 13 children, and consequently it was not a very healthy environment for my dad. How old was he at this time? Well, it was before he was... I don't know exactly how many years he stayed there because this is all just what he told me. But he was 16 when he left that environment and somehow got himself to Rutgers University and took a short course in animal husbandry at 16. And, and a short course doesn't last very long, but he graduated. In fact, I have the certificate of his graduation signed by the professors. And he was offered a job. Um, a free ticket west to accompany the first registered Jersey herd destined for the University of California at Davis. Jersey milk cows? Yes, it was the first Jersey breeding herd, so it probably was um, young heifers, cows, and a very valuable bull. It was, it was the start of the registered Jersey herd at the University of California at Davis, which was a cow college. About what year are we talking now? Oh, boy. Uh, it, I was born in 1933, so it had to be in the 1920s. And of course, it wasn't uncommon for orphans to, there were orphan trains, you know, that brought orphans out from the east to the west to get jobs on ranches and stuff. Lots of orphans. But, but anyway, Daddy um, was on this train with these, the Jersey cattle, and he took to them. He loved animals. His job was to clean the um, the boxcars. They were boxcars. To clean them every day, put fresh straw in, water. They would stop at places and take the cattle out and exercise them. They had to be fed um, a, a ration of grain and the finest hay. These were valuable cattle. It was the first first registered herd to be brought to California. So um, he did a good job. It was hard. Um, he talked about having lice. Uh, he slept with the cattle, um, and his main concern was the cattle. So uh, his story to me was that they came through Auburn, California in March, and in March in California, the pear trees are in bloom Everything's green. The oak trees are budding out. It's beautiful. The foothills of California. And he peeked through the boxcar slats, and the train stopped to take on water, and so he could clean the boxcar. And he looked at that beautiful rolling foothill land, and he said, someday I'm going to have my own little dairy here. He was only 16. Um, the train continued on to Davis, and they unloaded the cattle, and Professor Reagan took one look at this boy who had taken care of these cattle. They were delivered in excellent shape. There wasn't a speck of manure on them. Uh, they were clean. They were well-fed. 
and uh, Daddy was so proud of them and in love with those cows. And anyway, Professor Reagan took a liking to him and told him that he could he could live in the dairy barn and he would pay his way through college. And that's what Daddy did. And all of his life, I remember him telling me I was the oldest of five children, so I listened to my dad probably more than the others because I was interested in cattle too and daddy's whole life was cows and so he taught me to milk when I was four but I listened to his stories and he would have tears in his eyes when he would talk about the people at Davis the cow college cow aggies they were and he couldn't say enough about the university and the people and and then I don't know how, I guess the professors put him in contact with Peter Judge Shields, who was the Superior Court Judge of California at that time. Um, anyway, he uh, he started a Jersey dairy as a result of those cattle coming, and uh, Daddy worked for him, and he helped him. And uh, people saw in Daddy this rare... Um, quality of knowing animals like he would he would memorize the pedigree of a certain individual animal clear back to the Isle of Jersey then he started showing cattle he there was a, a select group of um, showmen in California and he knew so much about cattle that he was in demand and he worked for some of the top uh, Guernsey herds in the state of California, Barnegat Ranch uh, in Grass Valley, Clovertop Ranch out of Lincoln, and Ador Farms in Los Angeles. Well, somewhere along the line he met Mama, but the Depression came, and it was terrible. It was just terrible, but he he met my mother, and he fell in love with her, and she was from kind of an English family that was intellectual and college graduated and very um, different from his upbringing. And they weren't too happy about, <laughs> about their daughter marrying my daddy, but he did. And in the 1930s, they moved to the San Fernando Valley and the depression was, you know, right at its peak and there were long bread lines where people would wait just for a loaf of bread, but but Daddy didn't have to do that because he milked cows for Ador Farms at Camarillo. So he commuted from San Fernando Valley to Camarillo and milked cows. And um, How many cows a day was he milking? And this was by hand, by the way. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I don't know, but Ador exists today, I think. I've never been back to the San Fernando Valley where I was born there, but, but it was a very, very large dairy, and and it had a reputation. Um, but all I know is that Daddy milked cows and he had a paycheck, so we didn't have to be in the bread line. What do you remember about growing up during the Depression? Well, see, I was born in 1933, and um, my parents left I think before I was a year old and moved to Grass Valley where Daddy was the manager of Barnegat Farms, Register Guernseys in Grass Valley. Of course, we, we lived at Barnegat 
a few years, and then Daddy went to other dairies, showed cattle, showed them at the World's Fair at Treasure Island, had Grand Champion Bull. Um, that was what he did. He he would come to a dairy and and take their registered Guernseys and make champions out of them, and and then move on to another one. But his dream was always to have have a ranch of his own. So we finally did get 240 acres. The war, um, it didn't affect us because, I don't know, my parents were really unusual. And of course, we didn't have media. You know, we didn't, I don't remember listening to the radio except for um, Fibber McGee and Molly. <laughs> and, you know, we didn't, uh, at least I didn't, listen to the radio and we didn't have TV and and I was as interested in the cows as my dad and I raised cows and I was outside all the time and I do remember that my mother and other mothers had to go into a tower and listen for planes and then I had uncles I had two uncles that were in the war but the war was something that just didn't touch us. My grandma had little flags in the window that her sons were in the war, but my parents never talked about it. The only other thing was that Tomiko Kaneko and Hiroko Yoshikawa were Japanese um, classmates of mine, and they were very held in high esteem in the community, had beautiful uh, truck gardens, and they were um, taken away to concentration camps and I never really understood that until I read about it later in life. I didn't understand that. Um, when Pearl Harbor, Harbor was bombed, my parents didn't, they kind of sheltered us from that I guess or they were so busy. They were just so busy. Yeah, you would have been or, nine years old. Yeah, but apparently it was a real bad thing but I didn't understand it. Sure. Well, I mean, at nine, like, what are you really going to understand about the implications of something like World War when, you know, you'd been growing up just kind of trying to survive and, and to keep working and working towards your own goals? Um, it's it's got to seem very strange to, you know, hear about a place like Pearl Harbor that maybe you've never heard of before, probably hadn't. And then like, oh, the Japanese just attacked us. What does this mean? Yeah, well, see, we didn't have media. We did not have the world being brought to our door. Our world was the little ranch we were on, and there was so much work to do, and, and it was such a joy because I would be gone all day out in the woods. I had a little trap line, and uh, I just liked to be in the woods with the wild animals and or working with my cattle, and I'm ashamed to say I didn't learn how to cook. I didn't really help too much in the house. I, I helped Daddy build fence, and I hayed, you know, and um, put up shocks of hay and the old mower and a horse and tromped hay and jumped in the creek. And our summers were just magic because, you know, we were, we were really pretty sheltered. We were very poor. Um, all the money we made from the cream check went to um, pay the the hay and the feed bill for the cows. Nothing went for the house or our clothes. My mother made all our clothes. We were really poor, but we never felt poor. Yeah. 
And then, uh, you know, your, your dad continued milking cows of his own. And, uh, and then you, you had your own Guernsey milk cows and you were showing cattle. And then, uh, what happened in high school? Like, did you, did you graduate high school? How did that all go down? Well, I was in 4-H, big time 4-H. And so I showed at all the county fairs and state fairs in the summer. But yeah, I did go to high school. I was in the band. I was in the honor society. I was in the the newspaper. Um, but I fell in love with, the, or thought I was in love with a cowboy at age 14 and married him at 17 and was told by the powers that be in high school that I couldn't graduate because I was married. And that was the rules. So that kind of threw me for a loop. And so um, I went to the uh, school board and said, now, um, you know, I have my life planned. Um, I'd like to graduate, have a diploma. I think I deserve it. And I want to raise a family and I want to live on a ranch, and I want to begin my life. I'm looking forward to it. I want to be a housewife, raise children. And and I said, if I write an essay about this, would you consider it? And they said, well, we'll consider it. So I wrote an essay for English, and I did really well in English, and I got an A-plus on it, and they let me graduate. It's pretty amazing. And that was not the end of your your writing career by any means. Nope. <laughs> so where has writing taken you since then? Well, first, I believe that a mother should take care of her children, that there's a time in life for things. And um, I always kept a journal, uh, and and I read voraciously. But now today, where has where my writing taken me? Well, I joined... Um, the literary organization called Fish Trap here in Willow County. I helped organize the first Fish Trap um, organization, and uh, it became it was the college. Uh, looking back on it now, it was the college that that I was denied because I had planned to go to the University of California at Davis, where my dad had gone, and um, that didn't happen. So. So I started writing a column, and I wrote a column for 31 years uh, for a newspaper published in Pendleton called Agritimes Northwest. And I wrote a book. It took 10 years to write a book about a local woman. I had her diaries from 1938 to 1980. That book's getting ready to go into its third printing. And just recently, a friend of mine has done the complicated um, technical uh, stuff to have those 31 years of columns published in six volumes. And November 1st, you'll be able to um, to access them on ebook, or you can order the volumes um, online or in bookstores. It's kind of mind-boggling. I can't really... I can't really put my mind around what's happening lately. Yeah. And you're working on some other books. I'm working on a on a novel right now. I've never really written a novel, but it's based on 
Well, I have a little cabin down on Sheep Creek, and I went down there four months last year. And um, don't really want to talk about it too much right now because I'm, it's just in little bits and pieces, but I have it all in my mind. Uh, and it, it's um, based on, on, um, on that area down there at Imnaha. Yeah. Okay. So let's go back to, uh, let's go back to when you're 17, you're married, you, uh, you know, you use an essay to, to sue your high school basically to let you graduate, which they do. And, uh, and then what happens? Didn't you guys used to spend a bunch of time in the Sierras? Oh, yes. So what did that look like? Well, I love the wilderness and being out in it. So I, Figured out ways to get there. I made it happen. So, you know, I was had four children, two boys, two girls. And that's, you know, the way I did it with hand-washing diapers. And, you know, there were no, no things like today. But I said to my husband, I said, maybe we could get some burrows and go into the mountains. And I just could envision us setting up our camp kind of there and then packing those burrows and going up into the wilderness and even with the kids. So that happened. And how long would you stay in the mountains? Oh, three weeks, no tent. Um, Sometimes my husband would have to go out to judge cattle at a fair or something and he'd leave me up there with the four kids. And it was just, it was wonderful. It was absolutely wonderful because at this little lake, Maud Lake, there were native German brown trout, and there were no people. And And I kept a diary all through the whole thing. And my son, Todd, was not even a year old. <laughs> my dad. Your dad. Yes. He wasn't a year old. And, and we carried him in on a little baby pack, set up camp, and, you know, had a big old copper boiler. I boiled diapers and... Anyway, I figured out my menus, and and we ate like kings because we had the trout, and then I would bring frozen beef in or venison. We ate a lot of wild meat, and if there was a snowbank, I'd put it in that, and then when the meat was gone, we'd have spam, tuna, but I had always had a garden, so I brought, you know, potatoes and vegetables and we ate really well, and I loved to cook over an open fire. It was my thing. And, um, you know, the kids are so healthy, and uh, it was a wonderful, wonderful uh, part in our life to do that. We did that for years, just years. When did you move to Oregon? 1968. And tell me about about that transition. Well, my husband had ranch jobs, and it didn't allow for any vacation. But he finally got a job with the University of California at Davis as beef cattle herdsman. And that allowed for a two and three week vacation. We'd never had a vacation in our whole life. We worked seven days. I worked right alongside him showing cattle and, um, and the kids. I never had a babysitter, always had the kids. And um, so we came up here on a vacation because a man named Justin Snyder had moved from our area where we live there in Davis, to a place called, I couldn't even pronounce it, Walla, Walla, something. It turned out to be Walla County. 
And then we had another friend named Bill George, who also was with the university um, uh, staff, uh, palmology department. We didn't know him real well, but he was a friend of Justin's. And he said, if you come up sometime, you can stay with us. So we loaded all the kids and took off for a vacation. And we spent the first night in a motel, first motel our kids had ever been in. The next day we got on the road. We ended up in this county at night. It's a long, long way from Davis. And we had an old car. Usually he had car trouble too. And we got here at night and our friend Bill George had elk steak, potatoes and gravy, and rhubarb pie, which I'd never tasted anything so good in my whole life. Anyway, we were tired, so we went to bed. We got up in the morning. It was June, and I looked out the window on Alder Slope, where he lived, and I looked across the road, and there was this old house that was just kind of falling down, and I said, you know, we got to live here. I'd even live in that old house that's falling down across the road. And the mountains were gleaming with new fallen snow. Everything was green. The air was pure. I just went to myself, it's going to happen. I'm going to make it happen. Anyway, three years it took, and it did happen. We left a secure job, um, insurance. We moved up here, and we had no job no house to live in. Before the moving van got here, I found an old rented house to, to move our stuff into. And um, my husband found a job um, on the lower Imnaha at a place called Krell Creek. I think he made two or three hundred dollars a month in room and board. And I went to work at the hospital for three seventy-five an hour. But we were here. That was fifty-four going on 54 years ago and uh when you got here you know with with all the kids it was just you right um Lyman was wasn't here so the kids had to go out and and start hunting immediately didn't they well he went to work um on the lower Imnaha and and that commute is impossible and that didn't last too long because he got a job with Bill Wolf um had a Hereford ranch and that was my husband's expertise. So Bill Wolf uh, showed cattle in Texas. Hmm. And so he took off with the show herd to Texas and was gone most of the winter. And he left before winter set in. And we were in this drafty house with no stove, no heating stove at all, and no wood. And um, our friend Bill George said, well, you just go on the radio. There's a thing called Swap and Shop and say you want a stove. Well, we got a stove. And then Bill took us out in the woods, and anyway, we got our winter wood supply, but but that stove was an Ashley stove, and they were notorious for not throwing out heat, and we didn't know anything about Willow County winters, and it <clears throat> turned out that winter of 68 was a, a doozy. And it got down to 32 below, and the kids and I stood around with sleeping bags over us over that stove that didn't give off any heat. And the toilet cracked because it froze. It froze with ice. And the icicle on the bathtub didn't melt for three days. It was, it was bad. <laughs> but we made it. We made it. And we know about stoves and getting wood in and everything now. Did, uh, 
did Lyman hunt when you guys were in California? Oh yeah, yeah. We lived on venison. Yeah, he was he was quite a hunter, and he hunted up here too. When he got back from Texas, and we got through that first that first horrible year, um, and then he got uh, he went into logging and got a job, and and he hunted. He kept meat uh, all the time for us. Gotcha. So Lyman hunted in California, and uh, I imagine that was mostly like black-tailed deer, mule deer, stuff like that. It was, and I always went along. I I packed a 243 rifle <laughs> for hundreds of miles and never shot an animal, but I cooked for men. Uh, he always had hunting partners, and um, and I loved it because. Uh, we we again we went up in the Desolation Valley Wilderness area to Lake Schmidel, all those lakes I can't remember them now, but and and there weren't a lot of blacktail up there, but um, but when you got one, it was a good one, nice. and and they had to be packed out, um, not with animals. I remember a fellow named Art Caseman packed one out in his back, and he would take turns with Lyman pack a long way, miles. <laughs> But Lyman was a wonderful hunter, and he always got his buck, and we had good meat. Well, I never really got to know him when he was healthy. You know, he was he's basically sick for all of my life that I can remember, but anybody that ever talked about him talked about him being a good shot. Oh, he was. He was just, he was not only a good shot, he was strong and he he was wonderful with horses, and um, he rode. He, he had kind of a rough life too, and uh, but he was strong of body and and mind, and um, good hunter. Yeah. But didn't work out between the two of you as as uh, as can happen, and you ended up marrying Doug Tippett later on. I did. Um, who's who's also since passed away. Tell me about Papa Doug. Well, I was married almost 40 years to him, and I, I don't regret it. Um, he owned the Doug Bar Ranch on Snake River when we were married. Um, he owned 3,000 acres in what we call the hills. They call it the Zumalt Prairie, but um, the hills, the Salmon Creek, Butte Creek country. Uh, beautiful uh, rangeland, and he had a large cow-calf outfit. And then he had the Valley Ranch on on Prairie Creek, which was where our headquarters was. And and he leased the the East Moraine for twenty five years. And then he had a, a a very large sea potato operation, certified sea potatoes for over twenty years. And had leased land for that. And um yeah, that was that was huge and um And he was one of the early River pilots on in Hell's Canyon. Yes, he was. He um, he was a guide and had a wonderful reputation. He had clients that came from all over the world every year, and um, and he they hunted deer, chuckers, fish, you know, sturgeon. He had a boat that he would uh, take them drop camps up the river or on horseback. And um, I didn't know him during the heyday of that. Um, he was just going out of the business when I married him. But 
but I, I did get to to cook for the last hunts that he did have at Doug Bar and um, talk to his clients, and he was he was very uh, respected for getting the game, and the game was plentiful. Oh my goodness, I even got to hunt with him down there, and he'd go up those draws up Doug Creek and what we call the palace, and and a beautiful mule deer, you know, would flush out of there. And, and lots of chuckers. Oh my gosh, the chuckers. So many chuckers. And I used to love to hunt those. And lots of, uh, later on, I guess, there was lots of elk hunting out there in the hills, out in the Zumwalt. Oh yeah, yeah. My, my columns that'll be published will be full of all those stories because, yeah, I shot my my share but um he knew he knew their um their habits and where they'd be and how to hunt them and and uh, he didn't have a whole lot of patience with people that that just rushed in there to shoot them you know there was a a tactics that you had to use and he was usually right well and the the goal was never to shoot one elk you know there's times that there'd be half a dozen or 10 elk that were dead all at once that we'd be bringing back in trailers and skinning out with tractors and you know it was right. a, it was about making there be less elk out there eating that grass and also bringing in a, a bunch of meat for a bunch of guys all at once well understandably um he had a large cattle operation and and that that relies totally on grass and the elk would would get there early in the spring before we turned out because we always liked to let the grass get good start and may 1st was turnout time but the elk uh, like that grass too and they'd get out there and there'd be thousands of them and they'd just eat that grass down before we even got on and he was he and the other ranchers had it really rough they had an ongoing war with with uh, getting those elk numbers down yeah which you know, that war continues on today. You know, there's still five or 6,000 head of elk out there, um, primarily on private land, almost exclusively on private land, almost all of it on land that, that you know, is hurt their cattle ranches. Again, completely relying on that grass. So it's a, it's a tough thing trying to find the balance of all that. Yeah, it was... Um... You know, fences were down. No one knows how many hours our um, hired man and and my husband and me too put up fence that the whole herd would knock down. And and then um, you know the water holes that my husband built. You know, he built the ponds. Uh, they used those, and then the salt. You know, the salt we put out. And um, yeah, I don't think people realized. Well, they. They just didn't realize till they saw it themselves. So every chance he could to get a, a cow hunt or something to bring those numbers down, the ranchers had to do that for survival. You mentioned that uh, that when you were young, you didn't know how to cook, but you've made quite a comeback on that. You're now in the Pie Hall of Fame. You know, you're you're renowned all over as a, as a wonderful cook in, uh, you know, what is essentially a, a home style Western cooking, I think is the way I would describe it. But you cooked for some outfits in the back country here, some other outfitters. 
Uh, I think that backcountry cooking really hasn't changed all that much, except for, you know, now we have a lot more freeze-dried stuff, which, you know, I could really do without. But what was cooking like when you were, like, cooking for the Isleys and some of these other outfitters? Oh, my gosh. It was... It was wonderful. <laughs> I have to tell you a story about Manford. He's one of the top as far in my book. But the first job I took, um, of course, my background of being in the wilderness areas of California in the Sierras was top training. Because not only did I deal with pack animals, but I cooked, you know, I knew how to cook over an open fire. Anyway, I uh, my mother came up and watched the kids. And, and left me off at Manford's place. And he said, and this was probably about 5 o'clock in the evening. And, you know, in October, this was just the day before season was opening or two days before or something. And he said, I have to go milk the cow. I said, okay. He went and milked his cow, two gallons of milk in glass jars. And then he had this other stuff that he kind of threw together and and we had to drive to Indian Crossing. And Indian Crossing is on the upper of Naha, and we were in Joseph. And we had a cattle truck with horses in it. And there was all this stuff. And he had been setting up drop camps. I was the deluxe camp, the deluxe mule deer camp cook. That was my title. And But he had drop camps all over, and he'd been all week setting those up. So he was tired. So this truck, which was an old truck, um, he said, I'm going to go to sleep. You have to drive. And so I drove. I was just turning 40. And so I drove that truck, and he said, wake me up if you get to a place you don't know where to turn. I'd never been to Indian Crossing. Anyway, got to Indian Crossing, and it was a there was a supply tent, and we were waiting for a pack string to come from the deluxe camp up in what's called the Forks on the Upper Imnaha. So it didn't show, and it didn't show, and didn't show. So finally, there was another string that were about half broke, and. Anyway, we loaded everything on, on, he had one other helper there, loaded everything on this green broke string, and about nine o'clock, here came the string we were supposed to have down the trail. So we had to unload everything from that string. I ended up leading two mules, this pitch black, we did everything by lantern light, uh, and that milk. That milk, those two gallons of milk in that in glass jars were placed in a wooden pack box and put on a mule, a mule that I was leading. Anyway, we took off up the trail, and it was pitch black, and I was tired, and but I, was, I love adventure, and I, I just trusted my mare, and I brought up the rear behind. Two dudes were in front of me. They were terrified. So I had to just calm him down, say, it's okay, this guy knows what he's doing, just let your horse have its head. And I remember the sparks off the rocks. You could see them, you know, in the night, and I could hear the Imnaha rushing way down on this narrow trail. And But I just felt like singing because here I was, I was going to go in the wilderness and be this camp cook, and I wanted to see what was going to happen to those two jars of milk that weren't even chilled. We got into camp, 
God, I don't know if it's midnight or what. The first thing Manfred did was take those two jugs of milk and put them in a stream that ran by camp. And um, so I opened up Denny Moore stew and fed everybody, got the fire going, fed everybody. And then I made lunches for next day's, the hunt started that, you know, that morning early. So I was told I had to get up at three. Okay. So I got up at three, the lunches were made. I fixed them hot cakes and I went and Manfred said, now there's one guy here. He has to have oatmeal with walnuts and cream from that milk. And I went, okay. And by God, I went out there and got the milk and the cream was there, you know. So the guy got his oatmeal, his walnuts, and his cream, and he was happy. Because every year, that's what he had. And Manfred made that happen. I was so impressed. Anyway, off they went to hunt. I cleaned up everything. I had my little journal. I wrote everything down, even about that cream. And they came back in that evening, and they all had bucks, beautiful bucks. And they skinned them out. And, and I had, I think that first night we had steaks because you could bring, you know, me. I fixed baked potatoes, steak. I made a pie. I made sourdough bread. And uh, anyway, it was all good. Tell me about your sourdough starter. Well, you know, it's, it's hard to tell anybody about sourdough because I've done it for so long. But sourdough is wild yeast. It comes from the air. It's, um, it's bacteria that's desirable bacteria that is the, the rising action in, in bread or any product you want to make with it. And it, it takes a long time to, to, to master it. Uh, but I've done it for so many years, uh, it's really hard to tell anybody how to do it. If people ask me, how do I make sourdough bread? I have to tell them that uh, take 40 years like I did, and maybe you'll get a little good at it. <laughs> Uh, more than 40 years at this point, probably. Yeah, more than 40 years. I just, it's like making pies. I've made thousands of pies. And and so, good luck. Just go make a lot of pies. If you want to write, write. If you want to cook, cook. I mean, you know, it's not easy to learn. So, do you have any, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm hesitant to ask at this point, but <laughs> how how do you make a pie crust? Because I feel like the crust is the thing that separates one pie from another pie. And I've had a thousand of your pies. Um, they're all incredible, except for mincemeat, which there's, I still think there's no excuse in the world for mincemeat pie. But, but the crust is like, that, that's what really determines one pie from the next. How do you make a pie crust? Well, I put some flour in a bowl, sprinkle a little salt over it. Do you measure the flour or the salt? No. Absolutely not. No. And I put some shortening in or lard or whatever I have in camp. And I sprinkle a little cold water over it and toss it with a fork. You don't want to handle it too much. You sure don't want to knead it. It's not bread. Uh, and then when it feels right, you just roll her out and <laughs> <laughs> put it on the fly. Uh, that's so unhelpful. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. So just do that, you know, um, daily for 40 years, <laughs> um, which is actually more like 60 or 70 years. And then um, it might be right. Yeah. Most of the time it's right. Yeah. 
What's your favorite lard? Well, one time a grandson named James gave me <laughs> bear fat. And um, I did use a little bit of that, and it was really good, but I don't recommend it because it's kind of hard to come by. Um, but my favorite shortening is Crisco. Mm, yeah, tough to go wrong there. I think that those bear lard pies you made were a cut above. <laughs> and that, was a yeah. tough, that was a tough bear. I hunted for a long time to shoot that bear. I know you did. Well, you were talking about trapping when you were a little girl back in California and, and, you know, you started teaching me to trap when I was super, super young, teach me how to fish, teach me how to hunt. It was always an adventure as a little kid going over to your house there on Prairie Creek. And do you, do you think that those are still important things for kids to be learning today or, or should they be kind of focusing on technology or I mean, what, what's the place of hunting and fishing and trapping, and, and how has that changed throughout your life? Well, I see it changing in many ways, but I think that every young person should be introduced to the natural world as soon as they're born. And one way to do that is to, to get outside is to, in my case, was to just run a trap line and I read a lot of books and I don't know for some reason I just gravitated toward adventure and being outdoors and um, anything that took me outdoors and so uh, yeah I think every child is born loving nature if you take a baby like I took all my babies outside whether they were born in the winter or spring or fall and let them look at leaves and the way light plays on leaves and the sky and feel the breeze and and smell a flower and, and touch an animal. I think we've got away from that. Um, they give them plastic toys. Everything's plastic. Uh, get them outside. And, you know, we're all, we're all animals of nature, of the earth. And the earth is beautiful. I mean, even if you live in a city, there's trees and there's parks. Uh, let them listen to the water. You know, play camping with them. Because in our society today, we've grown away from nature. And it's, you know, Thoreau said, in wildness is the preservation of the world. And I think what he meant was that we have to get outside to get in touch with with God, with nature, with the spirit, whatever religion you are, is all about nature. And um, the sooner you do that to a little child, that's a gift you give them. Because when things go wrong, and they will go wrong because life is hard, you have to have something solid you can rely on, and you can rely on the warmth of the sun and and the stars and the moon coming up and the beauty, it's always there. It's never let you down. That's just what I believe. I'm taking your uh, great-grandson, Hank, hunting on Saturday, two days yes. from now. Yes, yes. Um, he's two and a half, a little bit north of that. And I asked my sister if I could take him. And she had to think about it for a second. And I was like, come on, you know, you don't want him to be a 
grown man and not know how to hunt. She's like, he's only two and a half. I was like, better late than never. Like, let's go. And I was definitely hunting or, you know, going on hunting trips at, you know, probably three months old. I'm guessing because of, you know, summer birthday, first hunting season, guaranteed I was going along. Now, that's not a reality for everybody. I get that. But good grief. If you get an opportunity to let your kid go out hunting or fishing or trapping or whatever, you got to do it. You got to do it. And when you were little, James, I took you when you were, you couldn't even walk. And I would show you things, you know, you don't remember probably, but things in nature, you know, growing things and let you feel them. And then we would camp in the living room in a tent and I would tell stories about hunting and you just soaked them up you just soaked them up and then we'd go um we'd go fishing and I didn't really know how to fish too much but I knew that if you let a if you let a line and a hook and a wiggly worm go underneath a root that there would be a trout and and I'd make sure it was hooked and then I would give you the line to pull in and you thought you brought it in and that catching a fish at a young age like that, you know, you never forgot that. Yeah. Yeah. Del showed, uh, showed Hank a picture of the, the moose that I, that I got. And, uh, he goes, wow, that's a big moose. And she's like, yeah, it is. And then he says, uh, it's dead. And she's like, yep, yeah, it's dead. And he goes, it's meat now. Like, yeah, that's exactly how it works. And uh, he used to think that, um, or used to say uh, that it was boxes now because all the beef that he's used to being around is carried in boxes. Um, just <laughs> the nature of a kid growing up on a on a beef operation. But uh, yeah, it'll it'll be interesting uh, to see, you know, what it's like for him to wake up early in the morning and oh, yeah. hike out there and sit still and be quiet and hear a gun go off and see a deer and see it get gutted and all that stuff. It'll be really interesting to, to figure out, you know, for me, how to introduce him to that in a way that's a good experience for him and, um, and kind of watch him put all that together. But I see a lot of people really trying to protect their kids from, you know, the realities of life and death and, and that would think that it was just way too early for a kid like that to to be around it but the way i see it for the last you know however long humans have been around this is what we do like there's no way that tribal societies protected their kids from hunting they're like you need to start doing this soon because you're eating more you need to contribute and there's really not a not a better feeling than than being able to provide meat to your family and if you can do that as a as a young um, boy or girl, it's it's an incredible sense of of accomplishment and responsibility, and you know it gives you a, a good start. It does, <clears throat> and you know what, little Hank, he's engaged. He he's there. He's present. He pays attention, and he's gonna soak it all in, and and it's gonna be a good experience, especially with. Um, with an uncle like you yeah yeah because you understand but i think these kids that are introduced to hunting and fishing it's not only a rite of passage but it's it's just a a, 
a wonderful thing uh, that that you can't take away from them in life and life is different now it's 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 just harder you know that used to be everybody kind of did that but we got a lot of forces at work to that don't think that's uh you know that it's cruel to shoot animals and stuff but but it isn't and those children will be more mature and able to handle what life throws at us when they have those experiences young uh they get it um it's just it's just uh, lots of lessons there that i don't think people really understand and mainly uh, being treated like a little adult, you know. Uh, children know a lot more than we think they do. Um, you don't want to talk down to any little kid because if you engage them, they um, they get it, you know, get down to their level and don't, you know, talk down to them. Just get down to their level and talk to them and treat them like little human beings because that's what they are. They're our future. And um, the ones that aren't being talked to are the ones that are our little lost souls right now. You know, that's our, our um, mental institutions, our wellness things are full of them. But you give a child that gift of treating them like an equal and and teaching them things in, um, in the right way. Um, that's the best gift you can give a young person today, I think. No, I, I completely agree. I completely agree. Now I don't have any kids, so I don't know. Um, but I'm around them sometimes, and I think that that makes a lot of sense. You have a lot of experience because you have four children. And then how many grandchildren? Nineteen. And then great-grandchildren? Well, quite frankly, <laughs> uh, when we reached 40, I kind of lost track. I have to sit down and um, kind of recount i think so over 40 great over 40 great grandchildren yeah pretty amazing that's what happens when you get married at 17 and have your first baby at 18 yeah <laughs> yeah no it's it's an amazing thing the impact you've had on on all of us on all of us and now you get to live in this uh this place on alder slope just where you wanted to yes i always wanted to be back on alder slope and i'm Truly blessed. I have a beautiful home and 20 acres here. and We got the eagle caps jumping out of the ground right behind us and looking out over the prairie and then the seven devils of Idaho over Hell's Canyon out the other window. Got deer and pheasants and way too many barn cats around. <laughs> How many gardens are you taking care of these days? Oh, goodness. Well, I have one down at uh, Sheep Creek. I was just down there this morning. Lots of tomatoes still still on and flowers. And I spent four months down there writing, uh, working on my book. Uh, in June, I put a garden um, over where your dad lives. Your dad uh, bought the place that I had originally. Beautiful black loam there. So I've had a garden there for, well, 10 years. And then even after I married Doug, I came back up and maintained a garden there. And... Um, Pretty big garden. Yeah. And you're rototilling by hand. You're, you're weeding by hand. That rototiller oh, yeah. that you have looks like a <laughs> torture device. No, that keeps you in shape. Yeah, at eight, how old am I? I just turned 88. Um, that keeps you, you want to keep moving. Don't quit moving. And that builds up your muscles and 
gardens keep you in shape, hoeing and everything about a garden keeps you in shape. I just love to garden. Gardening isn't work to me. It's fun. And then you get to eat all that nutritious food. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm not much on the gardening, but I'm happy to trade you a chunk of meat for a potato every once in a while. All right. And those tomatoes you raised down a sheep cracker, you know, that's that's the peak of what a tomato can be. Those are the best. They are the best. Imnaha tomatoes have a reputation. When's the last time you went hunting? Oh, goodness. Um, Probably 20 years ago. I don't know. Time just gets ahead of me. Um, I think I shot an elk. Yeah. Oh, and then I used to grouse hunt. You know, that's really fun. A little single shot shotgun. I love to shoot grouse. And you shot all your elk with a two forty three. Yeah. Yep, I love that. I remember crawling on my, my husband and I crawled on our bellies, just scooched along for, it felt like a half a mile up this hill. And it was worth it because there was six bulls. <laughs> I got to pick out which one I wanted. Yeah, I've got a picture of you on my fridge with a mule deer buck that, that you killed and holding his head up there you know a lot of people today think that that we shouldn't take pictures like that anymore i don't understand that no i don't either but james they just they're just raised so far away from they just read you know like bambi we call it the bambi thing but there's so much information out there that's just not true because harvesting a wild animal to eat is um, is a spiritual thing, you know. I, I after after I chewed an elk, I'd kind of say a little prayer, you know, thanking him for the meat, and and um, we eat all the meat, um, even the neck, uh, make mincemeat that you don't like that your father <laughs> does, and that mincemeat's real mincemeat. By the way, I made a mincemeat pie. Um, this was a Nash family recipe that. It, that Granddad Nash came up with, and it's passed down, and you know, it, it's the real, the real thing. Yeah, it's it's good stuff. I'm sorry you don't like it, but <laughs> do you ever make vinegar pie anymore? Uh, we made it for that fish trap. Um, that was really maybe. good. Yeah, well, if you like that, you'd probably like mincemeat if you close your eyes. <laughs> Those are completely <laughs> different things. Completely different things. I think Dad just likes mincemeat so that he can get a pie that he doesn't have any competition for because nobody else can stomach it. (laughs) You know, there's getting to be a lot of people like mincemeat. It's full of apples, home-pressed apple cider, raisins, currants, um, all those good things, you know, vinegar. neck meat. Yeah, but the neck meat is simmered on a wood cook stove till it just falls off the neck. And then it's put through one of those old-fashioned meat grinders, and you can't tell it's meat. It soaks up all all of the, you know, all that good stuff. And um, it even has, uh, you know, carol syrup in it. And Oh, man, it's, it's delicious. Mm. Lots of apples. It has to be home-pressed apple cider. You have to have the right ingredients. And no no suet. I don't use suet. But I put a lot of butter on top of the pie. <laughs> Pretty good. What's your... Uh... What's your take on uh, on medicine? Medicine. I yeah. don't like medicine. <laughs> yeah. So you ever get achy and want to take a Tylenol or anything like now, that? I don't think I've taken two Tylenol my whole life. And 
I don't take aspirin because they made my nose bleed. No, I, I'm not a pill taker. Yeah, just eat food. Yeah, if you if you eat good food, my gosh, you breathe good air and think good thoughts and exercise and um, like down there at the creek today, I ate a whole tomato and uh, maybe some parsley and. Um, you know, I think about everything that goes in my mouth. I think, is this going to be good for me? And uh, it's amazing what it does. Makes you feel good. Well, good meat. Lots of meat. I would eat beefsteak for breakfast, hamburger for lunch, in spite of what they say. You know, I eat meat and I'm strong. Yeah. No, you're extremely elk, strong. Elk, venison, my fresh eggs from my chickens, my sourdough bread, you know, my canned fruit. I don't go to the grocery store a lot. No, you're uh, you're rototilling gardens, multiple gardens by hand every year at age 88. I think that what you're doing is working. Yeah. <laughs> I hope so. I can't wait to get up in the morning because I'm still alive. I'm not in the obits. And um, I'm afraid I'll miss something. You know, the deer coming out in the field or a fox or a coyote or chuckers or quail. Are there any bucks out here I need to know about right now? Well, there was two little um, forked horns, but since uh, bow season, I haven't seen them lately. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> forked horns don't do well during archery season in the valley. No, I don't yeah. think so. They're a little dumb. Yeah. yeah, they slip up. They slip up and get rednecked pretty quickly. Yeah. That's all right. I've shot some forked horns. I'm probably going to shoot some more. Might well, shoot one on Saturday. They're good eating. And I'll tell you, these whitetail that eat this alfalfa out here, they ought to melt in your mouth. Mm -hmm. Pretty darn good. Yeah, I don't really like to hunt for horns. I know if I was your age and, and a guy, I, I would because it's, you know, it's pretty important. But I just right now would hunt for meat. And Man, I love a liver and onions and some sourdough bread. and Yeah, that's good. Well, I can bring you a liver this weekend if you want some liver. Oh, man. I love I never that. do anything with them. I ate a bunch of liver when I was in Africa, but we diced it up super small and fry it. And it was good. But those big chunks of liver like you like, I, that's not really my speed. Well, I don't do big chunks. I, the best liver is in elk camp. Well, I don't eat elk liver too much, but venison liver is in, you know, deer camp. And you take bacon cook bacon real crisp and take it off and save the grease and dredge that if you slice it thin dredge it in flour and fry it in that bacon grease and lots of onions and oh god you know ketchup oh, there's just nothing like it <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'm i'm just gonna i'm gonna stick to the tenderloins and backstrap you know <laughs> well make jerky yeah. and and sausage out of the rest of it yeah, I just, I tell you, uh, venison steak, dredged in flour, cooked in bacon grease or whatever, and mashed potatoes or homemade biscuits, and milk gravy. That's what I raised your dad on, was my kids on. Milk gravy, mashed potatoes, and venison or elk. Yeah. They were and, raised on that. And me too. You know, we had we had jerseys all the time, and, um, yep. you know, mostly we'd have them for, for bummer calves in the springtime. Yeah, but I was not great at milking those jerseys. You know, I've got big hands; they've got small teats, and I just kind of wanted to get the job done. And you know, 
mom would go out there and like they just relax and it's so much easier to milk but like your dad he sang to the cows didn't he when he was milking? oh yeah he sang uh, all the songs from the musicals like oklahoma you know oh, what a beautiful morning and and he'd sing love songs to my mama he was very romantic he loved my mama and he would sing songs to her i don't think she heard him but we heard him and the acoustics in the dairy barn were really good you know daddy could have been a opera singer he had a voice like caruso beautiful voice but um didn't one of your uncles uh write music for broadway oh yeah yeah uncle johnny he was all about music that's all he did he he uh wrote all the scores for music circus in sacramento and wrote music uh, played the piano made arrangements yeah he was very talented and he had another uncle who was a famous engineer, right? Built these giant bridges and dams and stuff well, like that. Well, you know, Uncle Stanley worked on the um, Aswan Dam and also on the Space Needle. He lived in Seattle, traveled all over the world. Yeah. My, my mother's brothers. It's amazing the talent that you see when you start looking into families, you know. It is, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. A lot of, yeah. A lot of unique skills that kind of get melded together and then... You know, every generation is a product of, of all of those people. Yep. Like you, James. Yep. Coming coming from you, coming from your dad. Yeah, you're you're just a product of, of everybody before you. And I think it's just it's important to to talk about these stories about, you know, the the events that made people who they were and and how they weathered those storms. Yep. Yeah, you know, life is um Short, really short. It's too bad that we have to get old to get some wisdom. <laughs> but, you know, it takes all uh, getting knocked down and making mistakes and getting up. And, and, and then finally, when you're 80 or so, um, you do it all over again because that's what makes you who you are. And, um, and, and nobody really makes a mistake. You know, you're just trying to find your way and 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 survive. And life is hard, and you do the best you can. And um, we all make mistakes. Mistakes aren't bad because otherwise, how would you learn? You know? Yeah. Ideally, you learn from other people's mistakes, but uh, I've never been all that good at that. So, just kind of make my own mistakes, usually mm-hmm. more than once. Well, besides uh, besides some some venison liver, do you have any other wild game requests for for this fall i brought you some salmon and some halibut and some cod earlier this year oh my goodness that cod that halibut was i can't even tell you how good that halibut was and i cooked it to perfection you know with crumbs and it was delicious oh my goodness you've given me so much good stuff james but i i love wild meat you know i love elk and venison and and always love fish um yeah. I've got a little bit of little bit of moose I was able to bring back. You know, we oh, gave most moose. most of that moose away, but I'll try and bring you some moose too. Yeah, I've never eaten moose. It's good. I yeah, bet. I had neither, and uh, I ate a piece of the uh, a piece of the tenderloin raw when we we're cleaning it, and then we cooked some up in the tent that night. It was fantastic. Yeah, I loved it. Oh, I've read lots of books about the north and moose meat. They seem to really like moose meat. Yeah. Well, Grandma, you've got great stories. Appreciate your time. 
we're probably going to do this again, get into some more stories. But uh, you have any advice for uh, for the good listeners of this show from your 88 years of wisdom and experience? Well, just don't take life for granted. Um, it's just a gift to be born and be on this earth. And no matter where you are, um, there's opportunity. There's beauty. Just get up and enjoy each day for what it is and and help people. There's joy in helping people, uh, helping raise children, um, be kind to old people. Um, just enjoy life. Couldn't have said it better. I live in an old cabin with bad to non-existent insulation and wood heat. That cabin can see snow every month of the year and needs a good amount of firewood stacked in the woodshed to carry through the colder months. This spring, as my woodpile turned to smoke and ash, I noticed something metal pushing out of the decades of sawdust and bark. I kicked at it and unearthed a Stanley thermos. The cup was missing, and it showed more worn stainless steel than green. There were dents in the metal, and the handle looked like a puppy had chewed on it, but it still hadn't leaked the old coffee I could feel slosh inside. It took me back to... Memories of cutting firewood with my dad, waking up early for an elk hunt, or going out to the canyons to gather cattle. A Stanley thermos has the durability to survive whatever hard work you throw at it. You may find it carries memories as well as coffee. Learn more about their new and classic line of products at Stanley1913.com or at your local sporting goods store. And catch you next week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share the show with a friend. You can also rate the podcast and leave a review. Your support allows me to keep doing what I love, which is meeting incredible folks and sharing their stories with you. For more content and photos, follow the show on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast or me at Six Ranch Outfitters. This episode was produced by Emily Brannigan with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Art for the Six Ranch podcast was created by John Chatelain and digitized by Celia Christofferson. Tune in every Monday for a brand new episode of the Six Ranch podcast. I'll catch you next week.